Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we so often need to be reminded of the truths that we have just confessed in song. So often we need to be reminded to be still. To know that I am God. You're not just a God. You are my God. You are the God. Still, my soul, be still. We can be still because of the hope that we have in Christ, because of the promises that are ours, the hope that we have for eternity. Father, we, just, we must admit how, how easy it is for our, us to become distracted, to look around, to see the chaos of the world around us, to be intimidated and for our souls to be not still. But still, my soul, be still. My God is in control. Despite the chaos of life, despite what the world may, sh- may say, despite the devil's attacks, my God is in control. And in him we can rest. Heavenly Father, we pray even this morning as we come to this passage that you would do a mighty work through your word that your spirit would take your word, that you would work in each and every one of us. I pray that you would give me boldness, that you would give me clarity, that the thoughts that I have formed as I have spent this week in this passage would come out clearly, that the word of God would go forth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's not working. As we turn our attention to the end of John 15 this morning, we find ourselves on the streets of Jerusalem, winding through the streets of Jerusalem. It's Jesus and his disciples making their way to the Mount of Olives. At this point, Jesus is well aware that these are the last few precious moments that he has with his disciples. As they work their way through these streets, his disciples have no idea. They don't know that these are those last few moments. Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion are moments, hours away. In this farewell discourse, Jesus has comforted his disciples. He's comforted them with the promise of the coming Holy Spirit, with the promise of his return. He's assured the disciples of his great love for them. He has promised them his peace. He has promised them his joy. And he has called them to abide in him. 
So as we come to John, to, to the end of John 15, into John 16, Jesus shifts his focus from his love for them and his call to them to abide in him. And he looks to the world's hate for them and a call to endure. This morning as we work our way through John 15, 18 to 16, 4, we'll see the cause of persecution and a right response to persecution. The cause of persecution. Before we jump into this this morning, as we come to this passage, it, it, it's a difficult passage. It's not a difficult passage to, to understand. It's a difficult passage to accept. It's a difficult passage specifically for us who have been blessed with freedom to really grasp and to appreciate It's a passage that we must pay attention to, a passage that we must heed. In our lifetime, most of us have had the privilege of studying passages like the one before us in a hypothetical or distant way. Yes, persecution happens, but not to us. Yes, it's important for us to know this, but likely not because we will face it. Brothers and sisters, as we come to John 15, 18 this morning, we're not coming to a hypothetical situation, but to reality. The reality is that the world hates Christ, and it hates all those who are in Christ. The reality is also that the situation in which we live is changing. The reality is that the hate that has always existed below the surface in America, even with the freedoms that we have, is boiling over. And I say that this morning as we come to this passage before we even dive into it, because I would encourage you to approach this passage not as a Christian living in a safe place where this is just a hypothetical, it's something you might have to deal with someday. To a Christian who is on the verge of very real persecution. To a Christian who lives in a world that hates you. Truth found here is not a hypothetical truth. It's a very real reality. So I would call you, even though as we read the passage, you may have thought, well, it's persecution. That's good for us to know, but doesn't necessarily apply to us. Pay attention, and pay attention well. Find hope and encouragement. And I, I don't start this way to scare you this morning, but to call you to heed the word of God. To prepare you, even as this passage says, so that when it comes, you may know that Jesus said that it was coming. That you may know that you have hope. You have hope, not just when a door is slammed in your face or when someone laughs at you because of your beliefs. You have hope when you lose your job. You have hope when there's no longer a tax benefit to giving. You have hope 
when those you love lose the things that they love. You have hope when your very life is on the line. We need this reminder this morning as much as the disciples needed it. As they made their way through Jerusalem, the world has not changed, their hate has not faded, but praise the Lord, neither has our hope. It is just as true and real today as it was then. And so we come to this passage. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The cause of persecution. And the first thing we see here is hate. Hate. Those who are in Christ are not just guaranteed Christ's love, as we saw last week in John 15, 9, but also the world's hate. Notice that Jesus first here draws their attention to the world's hate for him. When the world hates you, not if, when the world hates you, It says if in our Bibles there, but a, a, a better translation in the, the process of this passage, in the context, is, 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 is when. It's not hypothetical. It's not, it's not maybe they will. They hated me. They will hate you. When the world hates you, know that it hated me first. This is not meant to, to one-up his disciples. We know people like that, do we not? People who are always looking to one-up you. Oh yeah? Well, this happened to me. That's not what we find here. Jesus is not trying to one-up his disciples. When they persecute you, know that they persecuted me more. It's meant to prepare them. You are not alone in persecution. Have you ever had one of those moments where you kind of have a revelation and you, and you realize, huh, I'm not the only person in the world who does that. I'm not the only person in the world who, who, who bites my fingernails, who pops my knuckles, who smells a new book before I open it, who sings in the shower, who talks to myself in my head, who as I'm sitting in a room like this, I'm, I'm planning my escape. I'm not the only person who does these weird things. There's comfort in finding out that I am not alone. I'm not the only weird person in the world. There's comfort and company. And when the world hates you, know that you are not alone. The world also hated me. This hate is not a surprise. This hate is not new. In John 3.20, back in the beginning of the book, as after proclaiming God's love for the world displayed in the sending of the Son, John proclaims, for everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it. It's not a new hate. It can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, we find what is called the first gospel. It's the first hint of hope in the aftermath of the fall. And yet even in this first promise of hope, we find the root of this hate. 
There is enmity between the seed of the woman looking forward to Jesus Christ and the seed of the serpent, the world, and those who are in it. There is enmity. In John 8, 44, Jesus makes an explicit statement referring back to Genesis 3, 15. Where he charges that those who are opposing and accusing him are of their father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. There is enmity between you and me. And this hate has been following Jesus all throughout his ministry. The disciples are well aware of the world's hate for Jesus. They have seen it. They have heard it. All the way back in John 5, 16, the Jews are already seeking to kill Jesus. And in just a few hours from this very conversation, this hate will culminate in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They hate me. And I want you to be aware that they hate me because they will also hate you. The disciples know that the world hates Jesus, but here in John 15, 18 to 25, Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand that this hate is not just a hate that they will observe, it's a hate that they will experience. He makes it clear that the world will hate those who follow Jesus because of who they are in Christ. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. It loves those who are like it. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It hates you because of who you are in me. Last week in John 15, 9-17, we saw that those who are filled with Jesus' love will be characterized by Jesus' works. And as the world hates Christ, so it will hate those who are in Christ, those who are like Christ. We find here is a contrast and a conflict between those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. This hate will not end at the cross. But as long as there is sin, there will be hate for the light and the children of light. It hates you because you are not like them. You are not of the world. And again, just as we saw last week, as Jesus reminds them, I chose you, so he reminds them here again. Lest the disciples become puffed up with pride, Jesus reminds them why it is that they are not of the world. It is because I chose you out of the world. It's not because you were better than the world. In fact, you were of the world. It's by the grace of God alone that you've been taken out of the world and placed in Christ. Jesus chooses believers out of the world and they become outcasts of the world. Those who are in Christ are at odds with the world. And those who are in the world are at odds with God. In verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
Back in John 3, 13, 16. You may remember the first time that Jesus said this. It's when he's washing their feet. And he gets down and he washes their feet and he says, A servant is not greater than his master. He's calling them to serve one another in the same extreme, others-focused way that he does. Here in John 15, 20, Jesus takes that same principle. If I am doing this, you must do it. And he takes it from talking about serving in John 13 to here in John 15 to about persecution. If Jesus, the Son of God, stooped to serve, there is no service that is too menial for his disciples. And if Jesus, the Son of God, was hated by the world, do not think that you who are less will be hated any less. There is no category in Jesus' mind for a disciple who is in him and is loved by the world. Just as disciples are called to service like Jesus, so they will be called to endure in a hostile world like Jesus. It is the nature of darkness to hate and to oppose light. In fact, I would draw your attention to that word in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Let's move beyond the hate of verse 18 to persecution in verse 20. The hatred that the world has for Christ and those who are in him is not a silent hate. It is an active hate. It is an unavoidable hate. It is a hate that boils over into action. Those who are in Christ will face persecution. And notice that even in this, there is a little hope. There is hope for the task that disciples will be called to, to making disciples in a hostile world. It's not pointless. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Just as there were those who, by God's grace, accepted and believed Jesus, so there will be those who, by God's grace, will accept and believe the disciples. Those who love the world will hate Jesus and his followers, and those who accept Jesus and love his followers will hate the world. He's not saying that all hope is lost. The world hates me. It's just us. He's saying, I will save some. I will call them just as I called you. But know that you will face hate and persecution too. The world's not just going to line up and follow. In John 15, 21 to 25, Jesus moves beyond explaining that persecution is coming to explaining why persecution is coming. It is coming. That's what we see in verses 18 to 20. It is coming. They hated me. They will hate you. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. 
Well, why? What is the root of this hate? But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Notice first that persecution is coming because of a lack of knowledge. You, my disciples, will be hated and persecuted for my name's sake. For my name's sake. It's not what you do. It's who you are in me. It doesn't matter how good of an evangelist you are, how skilled you are at preaching, how how often you may speak in tongues, or, or how many people you heal, or what great things you will accomplish in my name. You will face persecution for my name's sake. Regardless of what you do, if you are in me, you will face the hate of the world and you will face persecution because of who I am. It is your association with me that brings hate and persecution. Just as Jesus' love for you is not based on who you are, but on who Jesus is, so the world's hate is not based on who you are, but on who you are in Christ The world will not hate you for going to church on Sunday. It will hate you for abiding in Christ on Monday through Saturday. Why does the world hate Jesus and all who are associated with him? Because the world does not know God. Their hate stems from ignorance. They love the darkness so much that they do not recognize the light and they lash out against it. My mind immediately goes back to my years in, in school. As a young person, I remember uh, in the mornings getting ready, my mom was a teacher, and so we had to be there extra early before the other students would arrive. And so we'd have to get up, and, and my mom would come in, and she'd you know, shake us, you know, wake up, it's time to get ready for school. And she would go and finish getting ready and come back. Guys, wake up, we've got to get ready, we've got to go for school. And she would go and finish getting other stuff ready and start getting breakfast ready and come back. And, and if, after two or three times, we're not up yet, then she just flips the light on. You know, now you've had your chance. Now it's just time to wake up. And I remember I hated that light. You've probably been there before when someone just turns the light on and, and you're, you're groggy and your eyes are tired and it hurts, it stings. I hated the light. It was blinding and it was uncomfortable and I would do whatever I could to avoid it and to return to the comfortable darkness of sleep. So the world hates the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the world and the light of the gospel. If they knew God, they would have recognized and accepted Jesus, but their hatred toward Jesus and reciprocally toward those toward his followers, betrays their lack of knowledge of who God is. They hate the light. They love the darkness. Secondly, it's because the light reveals their sin. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Why is it that those who do not know God react with such hatred against Jesus and his followers? Because the light of the world and the light of the gospel reveals the pervasiveness and the darkness of their sin. Back in John 7, 7, as Jesus is talking to his unbelieving brothers, he says this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify that its works are evil. And once again, here in John 15, 22 to 25, we see the same truth. The world hates that which takes away the darkness and reveals sin. We kind of have a difficult passage here. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. What does that mean? Does that mean that there was no sin before Jesus came? Well, no, we know from Scripture that's not what that teaches. That's not what that means. Obviously, what Jesus is here saying is not that before Jesus there was no sin. We know from John 3.17, Jesus did not come to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation. What it means is that by rejecting God in the person of Jesus, these men who would reject him all the way to the cross are turning their back on their only hope of salvation. What it means, essentially, is that they are choosing condemnation. What it means is that Jesus is not the one condemning them. They are condemning themselves. They are choosing condemnation. D.A. Carson states it this way, The idea is not that if Jesus had not come, the people would be sinless. Rather, if Jesus had not come, they would not be guilty of the weighty sin of re directly rejecting and hating Jesus whose words and works were the clearest light and fullest revelation of the Father. These men see the light, but they choose the darkness. By rejecting Jesus and the salvation that, his, that he brings, they reject God and his mercy, and they choose condemnation. In John 15, 26, Jesus continues to comfort his disciples despite the alarming promises that he has just given of persecution by reminding them that this is not a surprise to God. This hate and the rejection of Jesus is foretold in the Old Testament. This happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Guys, it is not a surprise that the world hates you. It is not a surprise that the world is rejecting me. I think there's a bit of irony in Jesus' statement as he says, their law. 
He's not downplaying the importance of the law or of the Old Testament. But he's pointing out that even the law that they claim to know and love so much foretells their own hate and rejection and they don't see it. Here in the end of John 15, 25, Jesus quotes Psalm 69, 4. In that psalm, David finds himself as the object of unprovoked hate. And as David was hated without a cause in Psalm 69, 4, so Jesus, the greater David, in John 15, 25, comforts his disciples with the reality that the hate and the rejection that he has endured and the persecution that they will endure do not jeopardize God's eternal, sovereign plan. We don't find comfort in persecution. It's not comforting to be hated by the world, but it is comforting to know that even in the world's hate, God is in control. The hate of the world and the persecution of the saints does not reveal a lack of power by God. Rather, it reveals the depth of the depravity of man. You come to verses 26 and to 16.4, we see the proper response to persecution. Persecution is promised. It is coming. They will hate you. But now how should we respond to it? It's a bit of a more positive turn. What can we do in light of this? What hope is there for this misfit band of disciples in the midst of such news? First, in John 15, 26, it begins with the word that promises hope. But the world will hate you and you will face persecution. But here Jesus returns to a promise that he made earlier in John 14, 15 to 31, the promise of a helper, the Holy Spirit. He reintroduces the helper, once again reiterating that he will send him and who he is. But the helper is coming, and when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, whom proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. How do you respond to the world's hate and persecution? The first thing you do is you begin by recognizing that you are not alone. You're not alone in your experience, but also the Spirit is currently testifying in the truth to the truth. Jesus went through persecution well, and you're not alone in that. He, he identifies with you, but at the same time, he does not leave you here to testify on your own in the midst of it. Your only hope is not just that Jesus went through this 2,000 years ago. Your hope is that Jesus endured, and your hope is that the Spirit is here testifying with me right now. Jesus has not abandoned you. Your persecution is not because he is ashamed of you, but the spirit who is in you testifies all the more in persecution. The spirit not only speaks to me through the word of God, 
He not only works in me to bear fruit, but he speaks through me to a world that is lost and dying in sin. To a world that is filled with hate. The world will hate you because your faithful life proclaims the gospel. Because the Spirit is working in you. We see this in church history, do we not? When the world tries to silence the church through persecution, the Spirit testifies all the more, and the gospel thrives. It goes forth in power. In fact, I would challenge you, if you have not, as difficult as a read as it may be at times, to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. To see the Spirit at work through persecuted saints. To see the gospel go forth powerfully into a world that hates the light. As much as the world hates us, it cannot silence us because it cannot silence God. Because it cannot silence His Spirit. The Spirit testifies. That is an encouragement. The Helper will come and I will send Him from the Father and the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify of me. But not just will He testify, but you also will bear witness. Recognize that you are not alone, that the Spirit is in you, that He is at work through you, and then speak the truth. Testify loudly and boldly. I think we tend to, when we come across a passage like this, we tend to, to think of it in terms of uh, a church, of a pulpit. It is the pastor's responsibility to proclaim the truth from the pulpit boldly, and that is true. But this goes beyond just a pulpit into our everyday lives. What is pictured here is speaking boldly with our lives. Faithful Christian living will stir up hate from a sinful world. But notice. Notice that the encouragement to endure in the midst of suffering has followed the call to abide in Christ. Jesus doesn't start with a promise of persecution and a call to endure. He starts with the promise of the Spirit. He starts with the promise of hope. He starts with the promise of love, the promise of joy, the promise of peace, and a call to endure. And then he moves to persecution and endurance. Faithful Christian living is not the result of human effort, but of abiding in Christ as we discussed the last two weeks. There's a logical progression to Jesus' message. I have given you all that you need to abide in me, a call then to abide in me, and now as we come through this morning, as you abide in me, the world will hate you. Brothers and sisters, don't strive after faithful Christian living for the sake of faithful Christian living alone. Abide in Christ and your life will match your message. Start there. The disciples' lives did not contradict the disciples' message and neither should yours. And that doesn't start with self-discipline. That doesn't start by changing yourself. That starts by abiding in Christ and letting him work in you. Hate naturally proceeds from the world as faithful Christian living naturally proceeds from abiding in Christ. 
If you watch sports, you know that sports fans are passionate people. And Lord willing, assuming that COVID restrictions continue to lift on Saturday, September 11th, Iowa State and Iowa will meet in Ames to renew their football rivalry. And against the sea of cardinal and gold, Iowa fans will stand out. The colors they wear, the things they say, the way that they cheer, it will clearly identify them as Iowa fans. No one on that day, September 11th, will be able to walk through Jack Trice Stadium in an Iowa jersey and not receive a comment. Those cheering for Iowa will stand out not just because of what they say, but because of how they dress and how they act. Their fandom naturally shows up in what they wear and what they say and when they cheer. There will be no mistaking their identity. Their mere presence and aims will draw attention. And similarly, those who are abiding in Christ will naturally stand out from the world. What you say, how you act, where you go, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, all of these things will testify to who you are in Christ. And as we stand out from the world, with Christ, we attract the hate of the world. We don't like conflict. We just saw two weeks ago in Romans 12, 18, where Paul encourages us, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't seek out conflict. Don't seek out persecution. Don't, don't, don't mishear what I'm saying this morning. As believers, we don't relish controversy. We don't seek conflict or persecution. Jesus is not encouraging his disciples to seek out persecution and to wear it as a badge of honor. He's informing them that a natural, faithful Christian life in the Spirit will bring persecution from the world. It will come and endure despite it. As bold as an Iowa fan on September 11th in Ames, Iowa, we must proudly and boldly wear our identity in Christ. We must speak the truth because it is the truth. And despite the world's hate for us, the truth does not change. So how should we who are in Christ respond to hate? We must speak the truth and our lives must match our message. And finally, in the first four verses of chapter 16, we see a call to stand firm. We must stand firm. Don't run, verses 16, 1 to 2. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble, to apostatize, to fall away from the faith. I'm speaking these things to you so that you may remain faithful. They will put you out of the synagogues. That doesn't mean much to us. But to them in that day, that is to lose your social standing. That is to lose every opportunity in that town. You're marked with a scarlet letter. You can't do business. You can't go to social gatherings. Your family turns on you. 
they will put you out of the synagogues. You may remember a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, the blind man, what were his parents scared of? We can't speak because they will put us out of the synagogue. That's going to come. As you identify with Christ, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, and the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Not only will they kill you, but they'll think they're doing the right thing in killing you. You will face social isolation. You will face death itself. But don't stumble. Jesus is not holding anything back here. He is very honest with his disciples. Guys, this is coming. Be aware. Be prepared. I'm telling you this so that you will not fall away. You will lose social status, but you must not waver. You will lose opportunity, but you must not falter. You will lose friends and family, but you must not stumble. You may lose your livelihood, but you must not look back. You'll be an outcast in the world, and you must stand firm. You may lose your life even, but do not run. Stand firm. He doesn't leave it there, though. In verses 3 and 4, don't run, but be encouraged. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. It's because they don't know. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. It's an encouragement. When the time comes, when that persecution comes, when you lose your job, when you lose your retirement, when you, when you lose your social standing, when you lose opportunities, maybe even as your life itself is threatened, know that this is not a surprise. That your God is not less sovereign. He has not lost control. He has not turned away. He is not ashamed of you. He sees you. He knows. He told you it was coming. Remember that I warned you. Know that I love you. I see you. I know what you were going through. I care for you. And I will never leave you alone. I have prepared you. I have given you all that you need. And I am coming again. So be encouraged and endure. As we come to the end of this passage, the disciples are longing for the kingdom. They are ready to go to war with Rome itself. And instead, they are told to endure persecution. They're ready for a kingdom and they're told the world's going to hate you. They're ready for a promotion and they're told you're going to face death itself. Not only must they endure hate and persecution, but their response is not to fight back, but to speak the truth. Their hope and our hope is that there is more love for us in Christ than there is hate for us in the world. Christ is coming again. All of his promises will be fulfilled. 
So here we find a promise of persecution and a promise of hate. And yet at the same time we find a promise of victory. The time is coming and for some parts of the world is already here. When we will not just risk having a door slammed in our face or a public mocking for our faith, but we will face legal threats and physical danger and death itself. We do not long for persecution, but we must expect it. We will not seek it out, but we will rejoice in the midst of it because our God is greater and we will endure. We will stand firm. We will rely on the Spirit and we will speak the truth to a dark and dying world regardless of the circumstances. Your circumstances do not change your message. And may God give us faithfulness for every day and boldness for the days ahead. So what can we do? What can we do? First, be honest. Be honest. Jesus said, I wrote this to you. I, I'm telling you this so that you will know that it is coming and that when it comes, you will remember that I told you. So be honest with yourself. Some of us like to deal with problems by not dealing with them, right? Just close our eyes and pretend it's not real. Don't do that. Be honest with yourself. Recognize that, recognize that your identity in Christ naturally puts you at odds with a world that hates you. And don't choose the world. But live in the reality of who you are in Christ. And accept what that means. Be honest with yourself. When you're honest with yourself, you won't be caught off guard. Make plans now to endure. Secondly, pray and pray often. We greatly undervalue prayer. Pray for our nation. Pray for one another. Pray for yourselves. Pray for your enemy. Those who pray often are those who act. Likewise, those who pray often will be those who are best prepared to endure. Pray and pray often. Third, be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared to stand up and to share the gospel when the opportunity comes. Be prepared now to live according to who you are in Christ, regardless of what the consequences may be. When you prepare yourself now, when you're honest now, when you start praying now, and the time comes and you are prepared, as you sit in that office and your boss tells you, if you cannot sign this statement that, makes, that, that says this, then you will not get this promotion. Prepare yourself now so when that comes, it won't catch you off guard. Be honest with yourself. Pray often. Be prepared. Be prepared not just to stand up, but be prepared to speak the truth. Know the promises that are yours in Christ and be prepared to cling to them day in and day out. Know the truth. Cling to the truth. And then endure. Those who are abiding in Christ will be those who endure. And so when the time comes and it is no longer easy, endure. Endure. This is not a hypothetical. It's a very real reality. And we must be prepared. 